Good evening and welcome to our Bible study. And as you know, we're in the final book of the book of Job. This is chapter 42 and we're going to read verse 7 through to verse 17. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven moles and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayers and not deal with you according to your folly. You've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed to his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came to him with came at his house, at ate at his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, a 1,000 donkeys, and he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kazia, and the third Kiran Hapuch. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived a hundred and forty years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. Shall we pray? Father, we just thank you that as we come to the end of this book of Job, that you will have blessed us through what we have learned so far, and that you will continue to remind us of these things, that we might be encouraged and even challenged by what we have learned from the life of Job. Our Father, we just ask now that you continue to open your word to us as we look at it together in your presence. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, the book of Job is about suffering. And suffering is a reality that we all at some time or other experience. And not only do we experience it, we see suffering all around us. Now, at this point, as we come to the end of the book of Job, we need to go back. I want to go back to the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of our Bible, to help us understand some of the things that we've been looking at. I want to go to Genesis chapter 3, and in verse 16 through to 19, we have here the results of Adam's sin. And also we have here God speaking. And we read this, and this is in verse 16 of Genesis 3. To the woman, he, that is God, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And then in verse 17, to Adam, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, this is part of our human nature. This is who we are, and we know this to be true. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, verse 12, he said, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. So the book of Job is about suffering, but more specifically, Job is about believers' suffering, and this is also a reality. A reality that we as believers, and like Job's friends, are sometimes slow to accept. And, you know, it's not just us. It was a reality that the disciples of Jesus needed to accept, because they would witness the sufferings of Jesus, the one who is God's son, and they would need to understand why he needed to suffer. And they too would suffer, and when they did they would know why they suffered. I want us to go to John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, uh, verse 1, we read this. And it's 1 through to 5. Jesus, in this passage, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for what is ahead of them. This is what we read. He, that is Jesus, went along and he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, in that little passage there, Jesus is gently introducing his disciples into the fact that he will suffer and they will have to suffer. And suffering is a reality for a Christian. Now, in that passage, the man and his parents, just like all of us, they were sinners. They were sinners. But it wasn't sin that made him suffer with blindness. It was God's will that the man was born blind. You know, part of that will is so that you and I this evening could look at this and learn from it. You see, it was God's will that this man would suffer blindness. It was God's will that Jesus would suffer. It was God's will that the disciples would suffer. It was God's will that the Apostle Paul would suffer. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, it's verse 23. He said this, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. You see, and that caused great suffering for Paul, but this is why he suffered. And with this in mind, I want us to take a look at something else that Paul said, something that I believe is relevant to the truth that believers will suffer, and that when they do suffer, it won't always be because of their sin. 
You see, there are different ways in which we can suffer. It could be because we have sinned and we're suffering because of that sin. It could be because the Lord needs to bring us to a point where we need to come back to him because we've wandered away. But there's also the time when we can't really identify why we are suffering. And we know, like Job, that it's not because of our sin. And I want to think about what we've been reading in the book of Job as we visit this well-known passage. Now, the passage is in Romans 8, and I'm going to read just a few verses, but I think they are important verses, verse 22 through to 23. Now, this is what we read. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. See the link there back to Genesis? Then verse 23 of Romans 8. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. This is talking about the life that we live as a Christian, groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly. See, in this life, we as believers should not be surprised when we suffer. Job was a believer. Job suffered. But Job also had hope. So we come to verse 24 of Romans 8. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no longer... Hope that is seen is no longer at all. We Who hopes for what they already have? Let me read that again. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? So that brings us into verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And we have seen that Job is waiting patiently and he's waiting patiently in the hope. And he's waiting patiently for the hope that he has. So let's go to verse 26 of Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. You know, we've seen that Joe went through the mill at times not knowing what he ought to pray for. I think that's something that we can all relate to. This is something that Paul was familiar with. And in verse 7 of Romans 8, And when he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. You see, Job persevered, but he wasn't alone. His faith remained, although it was shaken. And his hope was in a mediator. So verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There's a verse that you know very well, that we often hear quoted. And yes, notice it says, in all things. So that all things might include the believer having to suffer, and for him to suffer or her to suffer for the sake of God's will. But the passage goes on. Romans 8 verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. You see, God knew Job 
He knew that there was no one on earth like him. He knew that he was blameless and that he was upright and that he was a man who fears God and shuns evil. And we've seen right the way through the book of Job how Job foreshadows one who was even more blameless, one who was even more upright than any man in heaven or on earth. He's one who suffered more than any man would or could suffer. And it's Jesus. And then in verse 30 of Romans 8, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, and this is it, he also glorified. And we're going to see that as we draw to a close in this book of Job. But we also see Jesus in this book of Job, and we need to look for him. We can find him. But let's go back to Job. Let's ask the question, what did Job hope for? And remember the passage we've just read from Romans 8. What did Job hope for? His hope was, Romans 8, adoption to sonship and redemption. That's what he wanted. His hope, Romans 8, was to be saved by God. What did he want? Romans 8, for the spirit who intercedes for God's people to work in his life. What did Job hope for? What was his hope in? Romans 8, for things to be according, in accordance with the will of God. His hope was, again, Romans 8, for God to work for the good of his suffering. Why? Because he loves God, God who has called him according to his purpose. Now, you know, I can quote this because we can find all these things in the book of Job. So let's have a look at a few of them this evening. Job's hope of vindication, hope of salvation. Job never denies that God is his God. And that God is sovereign over not just him, but over everything. So, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So Job 1, verse 20 through to 21, we know that Job loves God. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came, into, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Okay, so Job's hope is in the resurrection. How do we know that? Well, Job tells us, Job 19, verse 25 through to 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. So there is Job telling us of his hope is in the resurrection. He doesn't understand what that will be. He doesn't know anything about that. But this is what he hopes for. But his hope is also in a mediator. Now we know all about that. The one mediator, who is Jesus between us and God. What way back... Before we could read that in the New Testament, before the people of the New Testament knew that, 
Job 9 verse 33 and Job 16 verse 19. Listen to what Job says. 9 verse 33, if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. This is Job's hope. And then in Job 16 verse 19, even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high. Job 42 verse 7 through to 9. This is the passage that we read together this evening and the passage we're going to look at. And in it, the Lord speaks, first of all, uh, to Job's three friends. And this is what he says in verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now, we looked at that verse last week. And as we did, we considered why and how the Lord was angry with Eliphaz, Bildad and so far, but not with Job. So we're going to move on this morning, but uh, this evening. But, you know, you've probably noticed that Eliu is not mentioned. And we're not told why he's not mentioned. Now, we know that he was younger and less experienced than the others. And because of this, he held his tongue until everyone else had finished speaking. What he had to say was drawn from what he had heard the others say. And he reached the same conclusion about Job as the others did. But his main accusation against Job was that Job was justifying himself rather than justifying God. Now we know that because if we go back to Job 34 when Elihu speaks, he said this in verse 5. Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Why wasn't Elihu mentioned at the end of the book of Job. Well, the bottom line is that we should have learned by now not to speculate or second guess about the Lord's actions and to accept that it was his will not to tell us why he didn't mention Elio. So we can abide by that. Job 42 verse 8. The Lord now instructs Job's three friends as to what he wants them to do. So in verse 8, So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. Now I want you to notice in this, and we looked at this last week as well, that God is calling Job his servant. And he repeats it here, uh, I think it's three times in this verse, we're going to have a look at it anyway. This is what God said. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. This is all happening before the law was given to Moses. But what it shows us is that the approach to God in the days of Adam was by animal sacrifice. We can see that in Genesis 4. We're told how Cain and Abel were told how they should make their sacrifice to the Lord. And when we come to Job, this would have continued, he would have known this. So when we came to Job 1 verse 5, we read and we see uh, 
how Job approached the Lord. This is what we read. When a period of feasting had run out its course, Job would make arrangements for them. This is his his children to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So we know right back at the beginning in Genesis, the sacrifice of a burnt offering was the approach to God. We see it right the way through. We see it now here in Job. And eventually, eventually, we will see that expanded when we come to the law uh, given to Moses by God for his children, the children of Israel. But back to our passage for this evening. And in verse 9 of chapter 42, his friends obey the Lord. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Nemethite did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted, this is it, Job's prayer. That's important. You can imagine these three men, in comparison to the sight of Job, these three men dressed in their finery, full of worldly wisdom, held quite high in the eyes of man. But now they will put away their pride and they will come humbly and they'll come into the presence of a suffering man, a man full of scars, a man who's been rejected by society and they're asking him to mediate between them and God. And this is God's will. Do you see the parallels here? The parallels that we see in Jesus, the parallel of the guilty sinner who comes to the cross to seek the forgiveness from God, the one who is bleeding and suffering and is in agony. Do you also see here the love of God? We can see the love of God when we see Jesus on the cross. We can see that reflected here in the book of Job. As God is allowing Job, or he's allowed Job to suffer, and who now, because of his suffering, can come almost in the role of a priest and a mediator, bringing burnt offerings, accepting them from his three friends as they're offered to God. And Job is here, and and on God's behalf of these three men who have angered God, who have come to seek forgiveness from God, They come to Job, for Job to pray for them as they offer up this burnt offering. Can you see here the love of God as he accepts and forgives Job's three friends? Can you see how Job becomes both priest and mediator to his friends who have been so cruel to him? You know, this is a reflection of what will happen in the law of Moses. And what happens in the law of Moses is a reflection of what will happen to Jesus, the once and for all perfect sacrifice. But let's move on to verse 10 of chapter 42, where Job obeys the Lord. And I want you to listen to this carefully. This is important. Only a short verse, but it's, it's very important. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. 
you know, this is, for me, one of the most revealing statements in the book of Job. After Job had prayed for his friends, Job hasn't been blessed yet. I imagine Job is still in pain and in agony and maybe looking, well, a man who's been through the mill. This is a statement that really (laughs) challenges the prosperity gospel. You see, Job is not going to be blessed because he is good. Job is not going to be blessed because he suffered. But as he suffered, he faithfully carried out God's will. And he carried out God's God's will as he prayed for his friends. And this was before God blessed him. Now, we don't know whether Job knew that God was going to bless him or thought that God was going to bless him. And certainly he wouldn't have expected how much God did bless him. And what we know about Job, and we imagine that at this this situation, this time, he's at the point of death. And from what we've heard about him, his expectation would probably be that he wouldn't be looking for God's blessing until after the resurrection because he believed in that. And he said that. He said that after his flesh had gone, he knew that he would see God. He knew that that would be the time when he would be blessed. And that would be after his resurrection. Let's for a moment go back to what Satan said to God at the beginning of Job. I'm just going to go to Job 1 verse 9 and 11. Satan said this to God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him, his household, and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to the face. And we know that when this happened, Job did not curse God to his face. So Satan went back to God, and again God allowed him to, 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 to cause Job to suffer to the point of death. God was in control, God was in power, and God could say to Satan, You can do this, but you cannot take his life. The battle was on. And now, as we come to the end of the book of Job, this particular victory has been won. And Job is about to be blessed by God. And as we said, Job was blessed not because of who he was or for what he had done. His faithfulness to God was not for what he could get out of God, as Satan said it was, but it was because of who God is. And we have learned from the book of Job about who God is. God is worthy. God is worthy to be praised. Why? Because he is who he is. So we can reflect on what has happened between uh, these two passages. And I'm going to read a passage from Job chapter 2 and then a passage from Job 42. Just one verse from each, just so we can get a a picture of 
the distance between these two things. So in Job 2 verse 11 we read, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by arrangements to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Well, they failed, didn't they? Completely. But then, when we come to verse 11 of chapter 42, we have this contrast. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. See the contrast? Let's just stay in Job 42 as we finish off this passage. Uh, In verse 12 through to 15, this is what we read, verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. See, this is three times as much as Job had. Verse 13. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter was named Jemima, the second Kezia, and the third Kiran Hapuch. Nowhere in all the land were found women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Let's just stop for a moment here. We can see here the grace of God. We can see that God is blessing Job. But we also see something of the grace of God revealed in Job. His sons and daughters had equal inheritance. You see, this speaks of God's grace to come, the grace that was there all the time, but the grace that would still be there under the new covenant. You see, in the old covenant, it was the sons who inherited. But the inheritance we receive through the power of the cross is equal to all who come male, female, Jew, Gentile so this is a reflection of God's grace seen in Job's gracious action so verse um, 16 after this Job lived 140 years he saw children and their grandchildren to the fourth generation and so Job died an old man and full of years now then again I want us to stop for a moment you can't read this passage on its own you've got to see it in conjunction of what has happened this is not a sugary sentimental ending to a tale telling us that all's well that ends well no we know this is the result of a lot of pain a lot of grief a lot of heart searching an awful lot of heartache it's full of suffering and rejection it's requiring patience and perseverance and faithfulness and faith This is about the battle that was fought in the life of Job, a battle that shows us the authority of God and shows us that God is worthy to be praised and worshipped because of who he is. A battle 
the foreshadows a greater battle that will take place in Jerusalem many, many years later, when God's Son would be despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain, a man who was oppressed and afflicted, who hung on a cross to die, who was placed in a tomb, but who rose from the dead so that sinful men could be brought into the presence of God by the one who is priest, king, and mediator, the one who is the man, Christ Jesus. And here's the victory in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 that we've looked at before, where Paul could say, where, O oh, death, is your victory, where, O oh, death, is your sting. And, you know, we've seen how Job has been blessed. Well, listen to what we read in Philippians 2, verse 9 to 11. And this is about Jesus. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This book is about Job. It's a book that is about us. It's a book that is about Jesus. It's a book that is about God. A God who we can trust and a God who is in control. It's not about why does God allow these things to happen. It's about trusting in the God who allows these things to happen because he is who he is. And we know through it all that he loves us and that we can trust him. So I want to finish this book of Job with a few words. I want Job to speak. I want Job to speak to us as we finish this book. So in the words of Job, Job 1 verse 20 through to 21. When he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. The name of the Lord be praised. And then in verse 19, uh, chapter 19, 25 to 27, Job said, and this is a great verse, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet my flesh, in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I, and not another, and how my heart yearns within me. This is the heart of Job that has yearned for the Lord through all that suffering. Job the man who didn't get an answer why, but he didn't need it because he knew the God in whom he trusted. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the blessings we have received through looking at this book of Job. And we just ask that you will continue to bless us through it as we come to you in the precious name of Jesus, the one who suffered and died for us.